Welcome to CMIO Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. And whether you're interested in informatics, analytics, or new technologies that help the clinicians at the bedside, this show is for you. This week, I'm covering the news to know for the week of August 26, 2019. Let's get to it. Off with a clinical article out of Annals of Internal Medicine. This is from their August 20th edition. Optimal treatment duration for patients hospitalized with pneumonia, the benefits of less. I'll read you a little bit about the story here, then I'll tell you why I think it's important for CMIOs. Traditionally, community-acquired pneumonia has been treated with a total of 7 to 14 days of antibiotic therapy. Contemporary guidelines recommend shorter courses, but overtreatment remains common. A recent evaluation of pneumonia treatment in 43 diverse hospitals in Michigan showed that two-thirds of patients received antibiotics for longer than the shortest effective duration consistent with guidelines. Reasons for the widespread excess are unclear. However, an overwhelming body of evidence shows that shorter durations of antibiotic treatment lead to favorable clinical outcomes with fewer antibiotic-associated adverse effects and reduce the selective pressures that drive antibiotic resistance. Article goes on to say that there were several meta-analysis that have compared short courses with longer courses. The most recent of these identified five randomized controlled clinical trials comparing short course, which is defined as less than seven days, with a longer treatment and found no differences in rates of clinical success, relapse, adverse events, or mortality. Most studies, however, did exclude severe pneumonia, and many of these five-day treatment groups had received fluoroquinolone, try that again, fluoroquinolones. A recent randomized controlled trial, however, compared a five-day treatment with usual care and included more severely ill patients. 40% of them were considered to be pretty severe. Compared with usual care, in which patients received an average of 10 days of treatment, five-day courses were associated with similar clinical outcomes and a reduced rate of readmission at 30 days. I bring this article up to mostly gets you to think about your order sets. And perhaps during our admission order set, if you don't already have it, put in there a um, the number of doses that we're going to be giving, the number of days, so that antibiotics don't just continue on, kind of on autopilot automatically. Something to think about with your order sets. The article does mention also about the role of procalcitonin. Uh, interesting, it's a little bit controversial. If you're not familiar with it, serum procalcitonin, this is from the article, Serum procalcitonin is an inflammatory biomarker that increases with bacterial infection and is associated with disease severity and prognosis. When tested serially and incorporated into management pathways, it has been shown to provide evidence of when antibiotic duration can be safely reduced in patients with suspected respiratory infections. A recent randomized trial of procalcitonin-guided treatment for lower respiratory infections in 14 U.S. hospitals with high levels of guideline adherence did not reduce antibiotic treatment duration or overall antibiotic use, which is why this is a little bit controversial. So in Europe, it seems to work pretty well, but in this recent trial, maybe not. They go on to say that low levels of procalcitonin in patients might be used to facilitate discontinuation of antibiotics after 48 to 72 hours of treatment. So many of us have procalcitonin pieces in our order set, and uh, I know that our clinical pharmacists are actively watching that to see if they can 
entice providers to get rid of antibiotics. And they tell me sometimes they have success with that and sometimes not. The providers are just like, well, it seems to be working. Let's just go ahead and continue it. Whether it's getting better through the antibiotics or just the patient's getting better from more supportive care is just anecdotal. We don't have any solid evidence on this. I would encourage you to think about your treatment for pneumonia, and that's why I brought that article. Next article I'm going to cover comes out of Healthcare IT News. Clinical, clinical decision support systems will surpass EHRs as primary caregiver interface. And this is a report from Bill Sawicki, August 20th, 2019. And the consulting firm Frost and Sullivan, I believe, is the one who came out with this new report. Um, they're talking about a forecast to 2024. According to the report, as decision support becomes a critical component of both healthcare delivery as well as regulatory compliance, the decision support systems market is forecast to grow from 3.97 billion in 2018 to 6.4 billion in 2024, which is a compound annual growth rate of 9.3%. They go on to say that with the delivery of healthcare becoming more complex, there's an urgent need for a superior user interface, both to reduce the load on the physician, as well as to ensure that the physician is informed of the latest treatment options and protocols. This came from Mike Jude, the research manager, digital health at Frost and Sullivan. The trend towards more regulatory oversight and the adoption of new information technology will further drive the need for clinical decision support. So my take on this, I believe that overall that sounds reasonable. There is going to be more complexity in care, difficult to keep up with all the research, the regulatory requirements, and having clinical decision support tools help us certainly sounds reasonable. I just know that providers fight these things. So yeah, they're talking about a $6.4 billion industry, and I suspect that means clinical decision support tools that are probably outside of your EMR and then interfacing in using um, APIs. I know that the EMRs also will have their own clinical decision support tools there at review, and, and the question is, can we have more sophisticated tools that make the clinical content available more relevant and more actionable that I really don't need to be told that my patient has sepsis, has sepsis when they're sitting in front of me with a fever of 103.5 and a white count of 20,000 and their blood pressure is down in the garbage and their pulse rate's high and they're short of breath. I kind of got that one. So hitting us with the right alerts at the right time. Interesting thing, keep, keep an eye on this. Keep an eye on where clinical decision support is going over the next few months to years because it definitely has an impact on our providers, and it, uh, when done right, can be very valuable, and when done wrong, is absolutely frustrating. Uh, going on to the next article, this comes from the American Board of Internal Medicine, and I got a letter from them, and I'm reading this off their website. It's uh, a new assessment option. So instead of having to take this massive board exam, which uh, lasts every 10 years, for those of you who have internal medicine boards, perhaps there is some help on the way here. Now, they already have this two-year kind of a smaller board exam, but now this article says ABIM to develop longitudinal assessment option. The ABIM Board of Directors is committed to evolve its program to provide a longitudinal assessment option for maintenance of certification, offering a self-paced pathway for physicians to acquire and demonstrate ongoing knowledge. We've heard that physicians are seeking more ways to enhance their knowledge through the assessment experience. 
With this new option, physicians will be able to answer a question, receive immediate feedback as to whether it is correct or not, along with the rationale and links to educational material. By engaging in such a pathway, physicians can assure their medical knowledge is up to date and utilize real-time learning activities to address gaps. They finished to say, while we work with the community to research and develop this new option, the current MOC program, with the choice and flexibility of the knowledge check-in and traditional exam will remain in effect. More details will be forthcoming in the months ahead, and they're looking for input so you can share suggestions with them. So if you have an internal uh, board, uh, a board of internal medicine, go ahead and share your feedback. They are definitely looking for it. Sounds interesting to me. What I don't know is when is this happening? Because my boards expire in 2020. And this sounds a whole lot better than taking some of those nasty tests. I would love to be done with those things and yet still maintain my clinical knowledge base up to date. For those of you who are double boarding informatics as well as trying to keep up your internal medicine board or emergency boards or whatever other boards you're taking, this can be A, expensive, and B, a big time commitment. It's important to stay up to date. I get that, but let's make this as friendly as possible and not make us feel like that one wrong test can jeopardize our entire careers. Interesting. All right, going on to the next article here. Allscript touts deal with Apple Health Records. Allscripts and Apple have struck a deal to allow Apple Health Records product to interface with many of Allscripts electronic health record products, including Sunrise, TouchWorks, and Professional EHR. Users of the Apple Health Records will be able to view their personal healthcare data through the single platform, even if they have several providers, according to Allscripts. In January of 2018, Apple launched the beta for its personal health record app with the intent of allowing patients to aggregate their health data within the EHR kept by their medical providers. The Apple Health Record app meets the FHIR standard, that's the Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources standard for transferring data among entities. Updates to patient health records are automatically updated in the Apple Health Record. The PHR data kept on Apple devices is also encrypted. With health records on iPhone, patients can become more active members of their own care team, says Allscripts CEO Paul Black in a statement. Health records on iPhones empowers individuals to direct how their own health data is stored and used. So why do CMIOs need to know about this? Interesting that Allscripts has jumped on board. I know Epic has been doing this. I believe Cerner is as well. And so the more companies that jump on board, the better for patients. I personally would like to have a tool like this so I can aggregate my health data. I think that's a great idea, particularly if I live in a city that's fragmented where I go across the street and I can get on a different EHR and not have my data available to me. Uh, as a consumer, I now have multiple port portals I'm checking into and that's annoying. So I think this is a good thing for consumers. As CMIOs, we have to start thinking about when are we going to join this? Uh, if your hospital is not already on it, should we be thinking about heading that way? I'm sure the interface work is what's kind of slowing things down. That That's usually a complex endeavor. There's some cost involved, certainly time and resources involved. And most of us have full plates. The CIOs are saying, thank you, we have enough to do. Why would we want to do this? And I think the answer is because it's the right thing to do for patients. 
That doesn't always mean it's financially uh, viable. So something to think about as a CMIO is when do we jump on board? And whether it's Apple or some other app that's going to come out, and how many of these apps do you have to make interfaces to becomes the next question. So be thinking about this Apple Health Records. It's an interesting tool that's coming out. I'm going to jump over to this article here comes from the connectverona.com website. And why am I talking about Verona? Because it's UGM time. And Epic's UGM is going to bring 8,000 people to Verona, according to this article that is published by Kimberly Withall from the United Newspaper Group, August 24th. And it's, uh, it's Sunday night where I'm recording this right now, and I'm sitting here in Verona, Wisconsin, looking forward to going to UGM. And it's the 40th anniversary of Epic, in case you want to know how long Epic's been around for. The Greater Madison Convention and Visitors Bureau estimates there'll be a $6.1 million in direct spending in the Madison metropolitan area. For any of you who have tried to get a hotel while you're joining us here at Epic UGM, uh, good luck if you haven't booked it well in advance, because no doubt, where are we going to put all these 8,000 people? Um, there, the conference goes until Thursday at noon, and I will probably do some updates without violating any of Epic's confidentiality clauses, just to give you a feel and a taste for what's going on in the EHR industry and what CMIOs need to know. I'm sure we'll walk away with some great stuff from the Epic conference. Going to do one more article, and this one comes from Becker's Healthcare Hudson. Uh, six Considerations Before Signing a Value-Based Payment Contract, written by Kelly Huge on Friday, August 23rd. And Kelly goes on to describe uh, six items here. I'll list them off. Um, number one is to understand the population. Number two is to assess the size of patient population. Three is to understand the provider network that will be serving this population. Number four is to limit the maximum claim denial rate. Five is understanding the difference between payers and the hospital's payer mix. And six is to assess the hospital's current patient care services and interventions. I believe this is targeted towards, this is, yeah, this is in the CFO section of Becker's for financial management. So that's the, they're taking a financial slant on it. I'm going to twist it and go for an IT slant. And what are the considerations that you would need to have for signing a value-based payment contract? It's not six considerations. I came up with 15. And it all relates around, do you have the IT infrastructure in place to do this? Number one, you need registries to track the chronic conditions. Two, access to the data from the most significant community sources. So all those different hospitals, different provider groups, different labs, all that data has got to come together to effectively manage a population. You then have to, number three, aggregate that data. So you have to have the data aggregation capabilities, which means you don't want duplicates and you can't go putting data into the wrong charts. So that is usually human capital that has to be put in place there. Number four is data visualization capabilities to gain insights from all this data that you have now aggregated. And you probably need some analysts who are subject matter experts to drive these tools for population health. Number five is you need to have an HCC coding initiative and that has both IT and operational components to it. To be successful in this world of value-based payments, HCC coding is 
absolutely critical and you have to be able to identify probably impute what are the right HCC codes to use based upon the data that you have. So if the patient's on insulin, you can impute that they have diabetes. And you also need to be able to do things probably like natural language processing to look in the imaging studies and see if they say that there's coronary calcifications on x-ray, which then allows you to uh, say that that patient probably has coronary artery disease. Number six, pharmacy price transparency and the tools that provide guidance towards lower costs at the point of care, not when the patient arrives at the pharmacy to receive the $600 bill. And so many of these tools are now available in your EMR. Not everyone has it turned on yet. And that is certainly a piece of infrastructure you need for public health. Number seven is utilization review software. I hear you now going boo, hiss, I understand. Uh, but to successful in value-based payments, you do have to have a utilization review process most likely to be effective at controlling the spend. Number eight, risk stratification tools so you can focus on the right people because resources are limited and those risk stratification tools are going to most likely be predictive algorithms to predict who's going to get hospitalized, and who's going to be readmitted. Number nine, you need to be able to steer within your provider network. So you gotta know who's low cost and high value providers so you can steer patients towards them. And that's not easy to know. I can tell you right now, thinking about the networks that I've been part of, I have no idea who is a low cost, high value provider. That is not transparent to me at all. And then once you do know that, you have to have the mechanisms in place through a referral module probably in your EHR that's going to put these low-cost high-value providers towards the top and some providers that you might not want to steer patients to um, perhaps ranked lower and then you have to have physicians that are willing to consider this information so a challenge is steering um, patients within your networks number 10 need tools that evaluate access you have to be able to understand your supply and demand because if you're trying to manage this population and you have no ability to get them into your offices plus your demand for service is outstripping the supply that you can provide you will not be successful these people will use the emergency department or go to a competitor and you'll have no ability to control the cost of care number 11 remote patient monitoring and telehealth solutions for readmission reduction I will put a question mark on this one. I believe that then that this will be up and coming and be effective. I'm not 100% rock solid on all the tools that are out there, but there definitely are some that are showing promise. So I do include that on the list. 12, you need to have effective handoffs across the continuum of care. So this is care management communication tools to coordinate that care. The patients are moving from the ambulatory world into the hospital, then out to a skilled nursing facility, then back to the primary care doctor. And in most hospital systems, that data is not flowing easily across unless you're on one EHR throughout your entire community. And then the data is available to everyone. But if you are on mixed EHRs and the skilled nursing facilities typically are not on the same EHRs as the hospitals, well, there's going to be a breakdown in that handoff. Number 13, you need tracking systems around the success of the models. 
so that providers that are participating can see how they're doing. They need to understand, are they providing good quality care? Are they meeting those quality metrics? And then are they providing cost-effective care? Are they understanding what their emergency department readmission rate, correction, their emergency department utilization rate and their hospital utilization rate so that they can understand if they're going to get a bonus from this, uh, from this model? And then what's their share of that? They're going to want to know those things. Number 14, you need to have a quality of care gap closure tools. You have to be able to outreach these patients, and usually that involves some kind of CRM solution so that you can understand who you've reached out to recently and who you're going to reach out to next and what are their preferences because perhaps they don't like getting text messages from you. It's 9 a.m. and they only respond on Thursday evenings after 6 p.m. So that's the most effective way to reach them. You've got to know those things so you can have effective patient outreach. Tell the patients that they're due for their mammogram, colonoscopy, and other preventative tools so that patient outreach is critical. And our current EMRs, I think, are a little lacking in this area. I'm aware of some CRM solutions that are now coming with, uh, uh, with Epic. They're most people are, are using Salesforce in their organizations or some other large CRM solution. And I think they're critical for managing the, uh, the gaps in care and getting patients to engage with your health system. And finally, number 15 I have down is care pathways for the management of chronic diseases. And these are really for your care managers and your, your nursing team guided by your uh, provider network to help patients who perhaps have asthma, are they progressing through the right inhaled steroids? Or when the patient starts to get sick, is there a care pathway to intercept that deterioration? This is, do you have in place the clinical tools that you need? And there's usually IT tools that are going to support this to keep the patients out of the hospital. And so that is my 15 items for consideration um, from an IT standpoint when you're considering a value-based contract. And I'm going to end there because we're just over 20 minutes and I'm getting up at the crack of dawn to start going to uh, Epic UGM. So that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. I look forward to bringing you our next episode.